0: Well, this morning, turn to Mark chapter 9. We will be looking at uh, verses 14 through 32. Mark 9, 14 through 32. Last week, we looked at the transfiguration. It was a mountaintop experience for the disciples, the Peter, James, and John, also for Jesus. And, of course, you you know what happens when you have a mountaintop experience, you come down often in a crash to experience the reality and the harshness of life. I remember in my particular life, we had a mountaintop experience when I was married. And then just a couple weeks later, my mother passed away and we went to a funeral. Very different aspects of humanity. Well, this was the transfiguration, seeing the glory of Jesus peeled back to see who he really was in his full divinity before the disciples, to now going down to the mountain bottom to a chaotic crowd and a big mess. It's almost like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the tablets only to find the Israelites worshiping the golden calves. But in this case, it's Jesus, his disciples, and a demon-possessed boy. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 14. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe... Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose and when, he had entered the, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise." but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. As we consider this portion of God's word, let us pray together. Father, I pray that these words written here by your servant Mark, as we tend to understand through the witness testimony of Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, your very word inerrant and infallible, we pray, Lord, that this word shall be imprinted upon our hearts, that we might understand. It might be heard by your ears, that we might hear it by faith. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us, that we might believe you and your word, that we might trust your Savior, and that together we might glorify you with our words, our thoughts, and our actions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You all know that facts have consequences. There are certain facts in life that we can't get away from. For one thing, we can't defy gravity. I can't just decide one day that I'm going to go out and fly. Doesn't work that way. We also understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4. No matter what current math fads tell us, that doesn't change. After all, I can count the number of seats in front of me, and it will always be the same whether I count wrong or count right. Also, people are born as male or female. That's all there is. On the rare occasion that someone has genes or chromosomes that confuse the gender, we try to work with them in science and medical purposes, try to help them. But otherwise, all of us, the vast majority of us, have been born male or female, and we will be all our lives. Number four, the Bible claims there is one Savior. There is one mediator, there is one way to eternal life. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ, both divine and human. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. In fact, this claim to be the Christ was made public just a chapter earlier in Mark 8. Now from this time forth throughout the gospel... It is known by his disciples, not by everybody else, but by his disciples that he is the Christ. And because Jesus is the Christ, we must trust him. Because he is the Christ, we trust that he is able to bring order out of chaos.
1: Because he is the Christ, we trust that he is able to do anything.
0: And because he is the Christ, we trust that he is able to prepare his followers both for this life and the life to come. Now, Of course, this is a rather interesting miracle. In fact, it's one of perhaps the only, what we might say, normal miracle... In the the second half of Mark, there's a lot of miracles in the first half of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, there's lots of healings, there's driving out demons, there's lots of things that go on, deaf men hear, blind men see, lame men walk, all those things, but in the second half of Mark, it's more teaching, And the miracles we have are significant but symbolic and not necessarily the the, the way of cycle that we see that somebody has great need and they're restored to normalcy. Well, this is one of those. Again, it's puzzling in a way because we fail to understand often what demon possession is or what it's like. There is a boy who is demon-possessed in this particular Uh, section of scripture his father is trying to have that demon removed from him and he has of course gone to the disciples in the absence of Jesus while he was up on the mountain but the disciples failed and here's the situation Jesus and Peter and James and John are walking down the mountain they've been talking here a little bit and then they come to this scene. There's great chaos because this is what's happened. And scribes were there. Again, these are probably individuals that had been sent on a mission from Jerusalem. They appear throughout this portion of scriptural history. They probably have been out to scout out who this Jesus is and to try and catch him at times so that they could deny his uh, authority as a teacher. And so immediately when the disciples fail to cast out that demon, the scribes go and they begin to argue with the disciples and this is where Jesus and these other three come in. Chaos. Why should we trust Jesus when there's chaos even amongst his own people, Here, you might even say the early church with just 12 people following him? Well, first of all, it's interesting. It, it says, says verse 15 immediately all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed. Now, it, it doesn't tell us what, what they were amazed were about. about. Maybe, Maybe there was still a little, little bit of glowing from uh, being up, up on, on the mountain. mountain. Maybe, Maybe they're, they're surprised uh, that he entered upon the scene since he seemed to be missing in action whatever it was. His, his very appearance is amazing. Is amazing. It's an amazing appearance. For some reason they marvel at him or are amazed that he is amongst them. You see, throughout scripture, even though scripture tells us he wasn't a guy to look at, he wasn't good looking, you know, there's a lot of pictures out there that present Jesus as a good looking guy, but it says he wasn't anything to look at, and of course we know that later on his appearance was marred because of his passion But for some reason, there's there's an authority or a a charisma of some sort that Jesus' appearance, just his person, amazed people. And despite the chaos, he can bring order. Immediately, attention is drawn to him rather than the arguing, and attention is drawn to his presence and what he's going to do about it. And And this is unlike... The scribes. The scribes here were those who were bringing the chaos, weren't they? Not only was it the fact that the disciples failed in their job, but the scribes here began to argue that because they did not accept Jesus as the Christ. In fact, some of them even said that that he drives out demons because he is of Beelzebul.
1: And they blasphemed him, saying that he was demon-possessed.
0: But, but the, the scribes, scribes, they could have brought order in the chaos if only they could prove their orthodoxy by casting out the demon themselves. But of course they didn't. They brought chaos. But Jesus could bring order even despite the scribes. He also could bring order unlike his disciples. All the father wanted was something that they had already done.
1: If you remember by this time in the gospel at one time previously he had already sent out the disciples two by two. And he sent them out and they came back and they were amazed that they were able to heal others and
0: drive out demons. Some of them had already had the experience of exorcism. And yet here they couldn't do it. Instead of bringing order they were bringing chaos. In fact Jesus claims here in, in verse 18, it reminds them, they were not able, says the Father. They were not able. In, in fact, the word here for able, able is, the is the word strong. They were not strong to drive out the demon. Verse 19, Jesus says, "Oh, faithless generation. In other words, he says there's a lack of faith going on here. We'll get, we'll get to, to that, that in a little bit. bit. But, but he, he can bring order despite the chaos of his disciples. And, and dare I say of the church today. He can bring, bring order despite the presence of evil as well.
1: When we look, look at this passage, passage we're reminded of the presence of evil. Not just the decision of people to do evil. But the presence of demons.
0: What, what do demons, demons do?
1: Well here's what it says in verse 20.
0: It says the spirit, when he saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, he fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. The father says in verse 22, it is often cast into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. What do demons do? Demons are out to try and destroy the image of God. Very destructive here. They would throw this boy, if possible, into a very destructive environment so that he might perish. We got earlier in this letter, in this gospel, he healed or cast out the demons in a man that was so strong with these demons, nobody could bind him. But if you read through the description of this man, you also understand he began to cut himself with stones. He was self-destructive. These demons are trying to destroy those that they inhabit.
1: Do demons exist, exist today? We have no indication that they do not. Of course, I think they're all around us.
0: Why is it that there is a great fad in our country of young people trying to cut themselves and to destroy themselves? Some of them have been involved in such activity that they might be possessed by demons. If we were to go to our jails, our prisons, if we were to go to drug-riddled individuals, we would see that there are open doors to demon activity. Now, now we have to be careful, we cannot claim that everyone who is evil, everyone who is an unbeliever has a demon. In fact, I can't even say necessarily that person A or person B with the same characteristics may or may not have a demon. I don't know. But we don't get any indication that they've left the scene. But God, through Christ, can bring order into the chaos and the destructive nature, even of the work of demons. But perhaps the biggest problem here is Jesus' claim here of a faithless generation. Verse 19 says, He said, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In other, in other words, words he's reminded of, of the lack of people's lack faith. Now there's, now, there's a cu- question here, isn't there? Is, is, is he crying out against the lack of faith of the disciples?
1: Or is he crying out about the lack of faith of the Father?
0: Or is he crying out about the lack of faith of all the people that are in the crowd? Yes. But But he is is able able to bring faith, to 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 bring bring order in a chaotic chaotic world, chaotic because of sin, chaotic because of the the, the consequences of sin, chaotic because of living in a world affected by sin. He is able to bring order into that despite all of these things.
1: Now, I could ask you a question.
0: Some of you are going to get this, some of you are not. Are you, are you a Marvel, Marvel guy, guy or a DC guy? <laughs> now, if you have to ask, you probably <laughs> are not into the comic book superhero entertainment stuff. There are two different worlds with two different groups of superheroes, right? There's DC and there's Marvel. Now, if you're into DC, you understand what it means when we say the term Justice League. But, but perhaps, perhaps you didn't know that, that back in 1940, there was a Justice Society. And the, the Justice Society is not exactly the same thing as the Justice League, although they tend to intermingle. I tried to look this up and try to understand it. Understand it. You, you see, see what, what they, they did then is they made the Justice Society a part of Earth 2 and, and the Justice League, League a part of Earth 1. one. And then and in order for them later to interact together, they created the multiverse. So that that now now you have have different Earths together and all these superheroes from from Earth 1 and Earth 2, the Justice Society and the Justice League can work together, right? You get that, okay? So now you have all these superpowers, all these superheroes that some of them, strangely, are actually called gods. By some strange scientific origin, others of them are called humans because they drank heavy water or were bitten by animals or some other such strange thing. And you you have all of this going on in a world because this world is in danger from the supervillains. And it's in danger from all the chaos all around it. So in other words, these people, very creative, very illustrative, creating comic books and movies that are impacting the hearts and minds of our young people
1: tremendously,
0: now are getting the idea that yes, there is some other higher force, but there is more than one God. There is more more than than one one way to save the planet, planet, so so to speak. speak. And And yet yet we understand that, that when it comes down to everything, we really don't know what's going to happen. There's just chaos. And how the world is going to be saved, who knows? Jesus isn't like that. He's not a superhero. He's the divine son of God. He is described here as the Son of Man, a a relationship back to Daniel, which reminds us of the forever king that was going to be put on the throne. There is one God, one Christ, one Savior. And this one Savior walked the face of the earth in the early first century A.D. in order to show that he was the Christ and accomplish the salvation that the Christ was going to do in fact we're told here by Christ himself he can do anything you see our faith is in a person his name is Jesus our faith is not in some superhero our faith is not in some politician and some other thing our faith is in Jesus and the power of Christ is crucial if Christ really couldn't accomplish salvation why do we believe in him If Christ really couldn't heal others, why do we pray for the sick? If Christ really couldn't repair relationships, why do we pray for those? On the one hand, it's not merely a recognition of who he is. After all, what took place? When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Remember, this is a mute spirit. He's not able to speak. What did spirits do when they encountered Jesus, these evil spirits? They would say, who he was? I know you. You're the son of God. In fact, scripture tells us that that they even know who God is and they shudder before him. If a demon recognizes who Jesus is, then we recognize that just believing who he is is not faith. It's also not merely believing in the compassion of Jesus. Here's the father. Jesus inquires of him. How long has this been happening to him? He begins to tell him in this interrogation from childhood. He tells him how this demon has sought to destroy his son. And then he says this. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now the father here, you can't, you can't blame him too much. He's, he brought his son to have this spirit removed, and the disciples couldn't do it. He doesn't know what to expect now. But he's come to Jesus recognizing Jesus can have compassion. And, you know, the world, even the world that rejects Jesus as Savior, even the world that rejects Jesus as the one who accomplished the atonement for sins on the cross, many of them can see Jesus as a compassionate teacher. But what does Jesus say about this? He says this, if you can. In other words, he's saying, what are you saying if I can? Of course I can. He says, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to do everything you want me to do. He doesn't even tell him at this moment, before he does cast this demon, he doesn't say, okay, since you believe, that means that the demon's going to come out. He just tells him the possibilities. In me, anything is possible. You see, the smallest faith in Christ is all that's required. Notice how this works. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. Here's Jesus. He's encountered this father. The father has, from the crowd, stepped out. You know, the disciples uh, aren't able necessarily to to intervene and and stop the chaos and everything, but the father steps out on his own. He says, this is what's happened. And, And he might even be saying, I started all this mess. And he comes and he's interrogated by Jesus, and Jesus then challenges him with this phrase, if you can, and says all things are possible. In other words, he's kind of brought this guy to reality. It's a recognition of his need for Christ. He's brought to the bottom. There's no other hope. His child, assumedly, for years now, has been someone you have to watch constantly. He's constantly convulsing and doing things. He's constantly being in danger of drowning or burning or other things because of this demon. And he's brought to the to the end of himself. He thought he could have the disciples do it. They couldn't do it. The only one left is Jesus. And the other thing he does here is notice his response. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, I think some of us today might say, what do you mean if you can? Of course I believe stuff about anything can happen. After all, in America, we teach in our school system that you can be anything you want to be. Baloney. A bunch of nuts. Going out to say that someone who is completely unable to shoot a basketball could become a pro basketball player. Or someone who is completely inept at math could become an engineer. I mean, how ridiculous is that? When we say anything can happen, what do we mean? Here, this guy accepts Christ's estimation of himself. He accepts the fact that Jesus says, you don't really have faith. You know, this is part of the problem with all this identity stuff in the world out here today is, is somebody will say, well, I believe such and such. You say, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Let's see how I can help you believe such and such. What did Jesus say to this guy who had come to have his demon exercised from his son? Jesus told him, in essence, you say you believe, but you said if. If is not good enough. If you are able is not good enough. That's not faith. That's like saying, well, you know, I, I need to go to church and be baptized and do all these things because I want to cover my bases. But I'm also going to go out here and I'm going to try and earn my salvation by being a good person. And I'm going to go out here and, and maybe uh, use some crystals out here or check my horoscope and, and so forth. Like, and, I, you know, this is, this is what it is. This isn't a hope-so hope. This is a no, so hope. And this guy realizes that he accepts the estimation of Jesus. I'm not belittling this guy. He came to Jesus seeking help. And now he understands that Jesus is telling him, I can do it. And by years of experience with this demon on his son, he cries out to Jesus and pleads for mercy. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. This is a cry of faith. All of you out there, if you're like me, you know this is you. How many times do you come to God in prayer and you're coming and you're saying, Lord, I just don't really believe that you're going to do what I want you to do. If you can do that, I want you to do it. When it comes down to it, do we really believe that someone who has cancer could... It doesn't mean God will necessarily do it, but could be healed dramatically. Do we really believe that God could restore a broken relationship that is so broken you feel as if the embers of that relationship were stamped out and thrown to the wind? Do you really believe God can repair a marriage that seems beyond hope or broken? Do you really believe these things? You see, we come to God and we say, Lord, I believe, and Lord, if you would just do all these things, but then we say in our little hearts afterwards, I know it's not really going to happen. But the guy like me must say, I believe, help my unbelief. And then there's this demonstration of power. I'm not saying here because this guy has faith, then if you have faith, God will answer all your prayers. No, it doesn't work that way but God could answer all your prayers the way you want. Here's a demonstration of his power. He says this. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. In fact, if you read the Greek, you know that there's an emphasis on the I. I command you, says Jesus. In other words, even though the disciples have already commanded you, even though if the scribes were really orthodox believers in the Christ who was to come, they could have commanded you, even though all these others, there were others in that time who did exercise evil spirits. But here he says, I do it. I have the authority to rebuke evil. And he did. And here's the ability that Christ has. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Jesus can do it. He can restore what is broken. He can restore a sinner to be in a right relationship with God. He can restore someone who is ill to health. He can restore, in this case, someone possessed by demons to someone who now is living a normal life. This is God incarnate. Jesus could do anything. I remember many years ago now, my first encounter with so-called faith healing, the idea that if you just believe enough, then God will do whatever you think needs to be done. My mother had just been diagnosed, kind of strangely as she was a little bit older, with lupus. I saw a letter written at Christmas time by someone that was from a church that my father had served in New York. We now lived in Illinois. And in that letter, this lady, I think her name was Phyllis, she wrote this letter to my mother and she said, Pat, that was my mother's name, Patricia, Pat, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't have to worry about that lupus you've been diagnosed with. And I read that letter and I thought, what in the world of a teenager? I thought, what in the world is this? How can this woman say this? Basically, she was saying my mother was an unbeliever. She's saying, if you just had the right amount of faith, then Jesus would have healed you. Now, she had one thing right. You must have the faith that Jesus could heal you. He has that ability. But sometimes he says no. Because it's not his will. Ability and will are two different things. You see, faith is that through Christ, anything can happen. Yet that same faith is the realization that it must be God's will for that thing to happen. God knows the big picture. You know, if it was true that if we had enough faith, everyone would be healed, who would be in our graveyards? Who would be in our cancer wards? Why would we need doctors to begin with? Why would we need medicine? Why would we have any of these things? Because after all, it would be so amazing that everyone who had faith was healed that everybody would be flocking to be healed, right? But it's crucial to believe the ability of Jesus. He can do these things. And it's just as crucial to understand he is Lord. It's his prerogative by the all-knowing God, the omniscience as well as the omnipotence to be able to determine whether that is the best for his glory and for our good. And with that then, he's able to prepare his followers. Here's the aftermath. The father and the boy get to go home in joy. But here's the disciples. They've now been humiliated in public. Everybody in the crowd recognizes the disciples could not solve the problem, but Jesus came and solved the problem. And they failed to understand. They say this. His disciples say, him, say to him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now you have to remember, they've already cast out some demons when they were sent out on their own ministry session. They've seen Jesus do it. They assumed that they could do it. Now we don't know exactly how this happened, how it transpired, what their thoughts were, what their actions were, anything like that, but they failed to understand that. And yet here, this is why Jesus had them as his disciples, that is those who follow him. He's able to teach them, he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, in this particular example, their faith was misplaced. They weren't trusting God to remove this. They were trusting perhaps the tradition of what had been established as disciples of Jesus. That that just like everything else, they could do this thing. Perhaps their their faith was in the process. Or their faith was in uh, the idea of it. But here their faith had to be in God. Because he's the one that does it. They didn't do it. It was God that does it. And this then begs the necessity of prayer. Why is prayer so crucial? Because there's not a person that heals somebody. There's not a person that drives out demons other than Jesus. And Jesus is now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's with us in spirit, not in person. And here we are reminded here that that by the personhood of the spirit, these activities are taking place but it's only by prayer. In other words, it's by recognizing God's authority, not our own. Matthew even takes it a step further. He says these disciples, not just the Father, these disciples lack faith. And here's where he gives the famous lesson of the mustard seed. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, and he's right right below a mountain, You can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be done. He's able to prepare them despite their lack of faith. In fact, the greatest preparation is going to come when he opens their mind to understand scriptures and the spirit will come upon them at Pentecost and they understand all these things much better. And it's also true when they fail to grasp the basics, isn't it? Why did I include 30 through 32 in this section? We could have just stopped at verse 29. But I think really it kind of goes together. It's a reminder here of the disciples. That they, they were confused. They were misunderstanding. And it was continuous. He already said back in chapter 8, he said this. He said that he was going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again.
1: Then he says in verses 30 through 32, he says this, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. pretty specific, isn't
0: it? He said to Peter, James, and John, coming down the mountain, he says to them, The Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. The problem is they just don't get it. They don't even grasp the basics. This third example here in chapter 9, verse 31, this third example adds another detail that hasn't been added before. He will be delivered over to men. We can look at that two ways. First of all, Judas Iscariot was going to betray Jesus and he would be delivered over. But on the other hand, this is a reminder, this is God's plan. God delivered him up for this purpose. Jesus, even in the garden, prayed and said, May this cup of suffering pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Again, God was able to take that cup of suffering from him, wasn't he? Yet he didn't. The betrayal was part of God's plan, but also the passion was part of God's plan that he would suffer. And, and this would take place despite the fact that they did not understand this. Instead, what was the reaction of the disciples? They were afraid and they needed reminders. In fact, 31 tells us by the grammar here, he continued to teach his disciples, continuing to say to them these things. In other words, it wasn't just these now third time he told Peter, James, and John, second time he told all his disciples. There'll be another time in chapter 10. In other words, this was an ongoing theme as they journeyed down towards Jerusalem through the rest of the book of Mark up from the territory of Philip uh, the Tetrarch, all the way down to Jerusalem. He's continuously telling them these things. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to do these things. Why does he say this over and over? He's preparing his disciples so that they would understand, so that they would believe, and so that they would be prepared for eternal life.
1: You know, one of my favorite memories
0: of Christmas time was at our first church when Jennifer and I were younger and we did Christmas plays. We did this whole series of Christmas plays. In fact, we'd do them on Friday, Saturday nights. And people from the community would all come to see these Christmas plays. I would act in them. My wife would direct them. And one of my favorite things was in one particular Christmas play. I don't know which one it was. I don't know all the details. But Jennifer's aunt was supposed to come in onto the stage and close the door. And she would just leave that door open. And I remember one time Jennifer just got so frustrated she left the door open and practice it. She said, shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. And I think really this is what Jesus is doing. I'm going to die. Don't you get it? I'm going to suffer. Don't you get it? This is what's going to happen for your benefit. This is the most important historical event in all of history. And they didn't get it again. And again, Jesus is preparing his followers first by his actions, by his healing, by his driving out demons, by his teaching, proving he is the Christ. Then teaching, teaching and reminding them through his word, not only who he is, but what God's plan of salvation is. But he's also, even now, interceding on our behalf. That's the prayer element, isn't it? That he's interceding on our behalf. We're going to be reminded in just a little while in our men's Bible study that when Stephen was stoned to death, he saw Jesus standing. As he saw Stephen being stoned, he got up out of his seat and stood there in heaven on behalf of his child. Jesus is still preparing his followers for eternity. See, Jesus is the Christ. This is the point here. Jesus is the Christ. It is very clear from Peter's confession, you are the Christ, chapter 8, verse 29. It's very clear by what's going on now in chapter 9. He's able to exorcise demons. He's able to exude authority. His very presence is amazing to the people. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. There is no other. There's not a pastor who can save anybody. I can't save anybody.
1: There's not a superhero who's going to save anybody, no matter how super their powers are. There's not a politician
0: who's going to save anybody, although they all have the promises of saving the world.
1: Only Jesus can do that.
0: He can bring order out of chaos. And let me tell you, right now there's chaos, isn't there? Now we like to say... There's more chaos now than any time in my life. But let me tell you, there's always been this chaos because Satan and his minions have always been at work and people have always been sinning and bringing God's order into chaos because of the consequences of their sin. But this is a reminder. He is the Christ. He can do anything. He is our Lord and teacher and he's head of the church. He is able to do far more than we can possibly imagine. But we still struggle. I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, you are Lord.
1: Let us not forget
0: that. Lord, you are our Savior. Help us not to forget that. And Lord, you are able to do anything. We so easily forget that. Lord, I just pray that for each person here, you would help our unbelief. You know, Lord, because of our sinful selves, we will have temptations, we will have doubts. There are times when we will be closer to you than others. But, Lord, preserve us, help us, that we might see your grace on a day-by-day basis. And we might know that you are Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.